So, Father, we bless you today for the cross that bore your Son, Jesus Christ. For all of our sins were nailed to that cross. And, Father, written across it are the proverbial words, paid in full. We thank you for the payment that has been received, not because of our good works, not because of our striving, but because of the wounds of Jesus Christ that have paid our ransom. Lord God, warm our hearts, align our affections to yours, and help us to see more clearly that great cross of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray these things, and all God's people said, Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to meet me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I won't make much of them here, but it's great to have my family uh, with me this morning, and I'm delighted to, to share them with you today. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, beginning verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, pay attention to this word, canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a great painting that's out. It is a painting that really um, was not only done by Holman Hunt. It actually brought him into international fame. There's a painting that he put together and simply entitled, The Shadow of the Cross. In this painting, we see a youthful Jesus who is working in his father's carpentry shop. It's the end of a day. Jesus is exhausted in his humanity. He did get tired. Here is Jesus. His shirt is off. He's just finished uh, yet another carpentry project. And yet here he is, tired, fatigued, having done carpentry all day long. And yet as the sun begins to set, Holman Hunt depicts the shadow of a cross that is looming over Jesus. The message that Holman Hunt wants to depict for us is is simply the inescapable reality of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ was his mission in life. It is why he came. Jesus Christ himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many Several times, Jesus would even turn to his disciples and would, would not only predict his death, but he would tell them that, that I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem, an implication to what lied ahead that Friday evening when he would be nailed to the cross. 
Everything in Jesus' life was pointing to the cross. His preaching pointed to the cross. His healing pointed to the cross. His miracles in which he subjugated creation to his own mastery pointed to the cross. And even simple mundane tasks like carpentry pointed to the cross. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that was the center of his life. And therefore, as his followers, for us it is to be the center of our lives. Everything we do must be done under the shadow of the cross. That we live and we exist and we operate to display the centrifugal force of the power of the cross in our lives. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who made up in his mind, I am not going to boast in anything but the power of the cross. I won't boast in where I live. I won't boast in my zip code. I won't boast in my job. I won't boast in my gifts. But I will boast in one thing. Oh, the wonderful cross. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that we live our lives beneath the shadow of the cross. It was a black man, the lawyer, theologian, Tertullian, who pointed to this. When he wrote these words, will you look at them with me on the screen? Around about eighty two hundred, he makes mention of the cross in the Christian community. He said, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign, the cross. Tertullian is saying, central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, means that we live under the shadow of the cross. In just a few moments, I want to point our attention to the glories of the cross, and yet we can't understand the beauty of the cross unless we understand the ugliness of our own sin. You do understand that that it was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was E.K. Bailey in his wonderful confessions of an ex-crossmaker. He points out the reality. It wasn't the actual individuals, the centurions who nailed Jesus to the cross. It was every lie that we told. It was every juicy piece of gossip that we shared. It was every slanderous word that oozed from our mouth. It was every act of immorality that we had ever contemplated or done. These were the nails that nailed our Savior to the cross. In order to understand the cross, we must understand our own sin. And yet I don't want to just talk about things we've done because the Bible is clear. Before we even sinned, we were sinners. Because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, their sin was passed on to every subsequent human being born into this world, save Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 5. It is the doctrine of original sin. That before I sinned, I was born a sinner. 
Paul alluded to this in, in Psalm 51 when he says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Children, as precious as they are, they don't need to be taught how to be selfish. A little, little two-month-old baby, as cute and as precious it is, at three o'clock in the morning when it's laying in its crib, it, it doesn't think, you know, I'm really hungry right now, but mom and daddy have to get up and go to work. So I want to think about them and just table my own desires and needs. And no, 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 all it can think of is its own little world. I'm hungry. Get your backside out of bed and cater to my needs right now. This is how children think. Children need, don't need to go to lying school. They don't need to take lying 101. It's just hardwired into their existence. Where does it come from? It comes from Adam. Because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, it bequeathed to all of us a sin nature. We are born into this world morally deficient and bankrupt, headed down a one-way street destined for an eternity in hell. I got a friend of mine, he's a junior, that is, he's named after his dad. And when my friend, unbeknownst to him, was a little boy, his dad had gotten himself into a tight financial predicament, and so his dad figured out the best way out was, since his son was named after him, that he could simply um, move or put some new items on credit under his son's name, who's named after him, and put it on his son's social security card. My, my friend didn't realize this until much later in life. As an adult, when he went to go apply for his first loan and he was turned down and told he not only didn't have credit, but he actually had horrible credit. And he did some research and he realized through no fault of his own, his dad had handed him a legacy of bad credit. And now the result is he's spending the bulk of his adult life cleaning up his father's mess passed down to him. I've got some good and bad news this afternoon for us. The bad news is, like my friend, all of us born into this world, Adam gave us bad spiritual credit. That we were born into this world, again, headed down a one-way street destined for hell. But the good news is, unlike my friend, we don't need to spend our lives cleaning up our foreparents' mess. For Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he's washed it. White as snow. Because of what Jesus Christ did, the second Adam, he, the second Adam, has cleaned up the first Adam's mess through no striving on our own, but because of what he did one Friday afternoon on a cross. Well, what does this cross accomplish for us? I want to just spend another seven or eight minutes. I'll be done. But our text tells us that our cross, that the cross of Jesus Christ has accomplished two things for us. In the middle of verse 13, he says that God made life together with him. Here it is, having forgiven us all our trespass by, here it is, canceling the record of debt. The first thing he said the cross of Jesus Christ did for us is it has provided us with forgiveness. Now, he uses an image that we don't understand. It is an image called the record of debt. 
Record of debt is um, kind of our 21st century equivalent of a, of a credit report. A record of debt in first century Roman society, when a person had a record of debt, it had laid out in front of them all of their debts. And here you would be, I would sit down with an individual, that individual would be my creditor, that person I'd owed that money to, we'd sit down and written on this piece of papyrus, this piece of paper would be all of my debts, I would review it, I would acknowledge, yes, these are my debts, and as a part of my acknowledgement, I would write down my own signature at the end of that piece of papyrus or paper. I am acknowledging these are my debts, and I will pay it back, and if I didn't pay it back, I was sold into slavery. The Apostle Paul says that spiritually speaking, all of us have our own spiritual credit report. It is our record of debt. Every sin that we've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit has been chronicled on this record of debt. Here we are looking at every lie we've ever told, every evil thought we've ever harbored, every juicy piece of gossip we've ever shared, every sin we have committed, are committing, and will ever commit. We look at this thing and it's pages upon pages upon pages. And we're saying, there's no way I can pay this back. Here is Paul. He's saying on the cross, Jesus canceled our record of debt. Y'all ain't got it. Paul is writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for soul is a very interesting word. You need to understand, in Paul's day, paper wasn't cheap. It was very expensive. They actually wrote on something called papyrus. In Paul's day, ink didn't have the acidic properties it has now. That is, it didn't bite into the page and stay on it. It was really temporary. It would kind of sit on the surface of the page. Because papyrus was very expensive, here you would have scribes who oftentimes would use the same sheet of paper multiple times. When they wanted to use it again, they would simply take a sponge, dip it in a solution, and would take that solution on this sponge and would remove the previous ink. That act of taking a sponge, dipping it in a solution, and removing the previous ink is the same word used as cancel in our text. He says, on the cross, Jesus Christ took out his divine sponge, dipped it in a solution called his blood, and wrote out, erased every sin we have ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit. It has been canceled. Y'all ain't got it. Any lawyers in the house? Any, any lawyers? Yes, there's, there's something in the legal realm called expunge. When a person is convicted of a crime, and if they ever have that conviction expunged, it means to wipe clean. It means to remove as if it was never there. I asked a lawyer friend of mine, I said, explain that to me. He says, the idea of expunged is so powerful that if you were ever asked the question, have you been convicted of a crime, you could legally and morally say no because your record has been expunged. On the cross, our record was expunged. What has the cross of Jesus Christ done for us, friends? As far as the east is from the west is as far as he has removed our sins from us. And yet he tells us that on Good Friday, it is not just about the forgiveness of sins. It is also the cross of Jesus Christ. He talks about the triumph over sins. 
Verse 15, let's go home on this one. He says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, make note of this, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, N.T. Wright calls this verse a paradox. It's a paradox because if you study the crucifixion narrative, it actually appears as if Jesus was the one who was put to open shame. He was mocked scourged, spit upon, his beard was plucked, he was ridiculed, he was castigated, he was stripped naked, he was run through with the sword. Here he is on the cross. It seems as if he was put to open shame. And if the crucifixion narrative would have ended on Friday, we would not call it Good Friday. They laid him in that borrowed tomb, borrowed from the, from the man Joseph of Arimathea, and they left him there all night Friday night. And they left him in that borrowed tomb all day Saturday. And they left him in that borrowed tomb all night Saturday night. Now, I grew up Baptist, and in the Baptist tradition, we say early, Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands. Good Friday is only good because of what happens on Sunday. And here is Paul referencing Friday, but he's got a view to Sunday morning. And it was because of the empty tomb on Sunday morning that actually the cross is counterintuitive. Because of Sunday morning coupled with Good Friday, it wasn't Jesus who was ultimately put to shame, but it was the enemies of God who was put to shame. Now, you don't understand this. This idea of being put to shame, Paul's readers know this is a reference to what the Romans do. Whenever the Romans would conquer you, you need to understand the Romans were never, ever satisfied with just winning. They had to ridicule you. Whenever they won, they would always have a parade. And in this parade, they would strip down naked the generals and kings and queens of the armies they had just defeated. They would have this parade, and leading the parade would be the conquering general. And in chains and shackles behind them would be running the streets of Rome naked, those in whom the Romans had just defeated. And as they're running those streets naked, people are jeering. Why? Because to the Romans, they weren't just concerned with winning. They had to run up the score. Paul uses this imagery to say that when Jesus Christ won on the cross, he didn't just win. He equates it to what the Romans would do. It is as if he stripped Satan and his imps naked. And he ran up the score, putting on a procession for all to see that he's won. Now, what does this mean for you and I? Let's put some shoe leather on this. Because he's won, we've won. If we are in Christ, we don't have to live a defeated life. If we are in Christ, we're not fighting for victory, but we're fighting from victory. We are more than conquerors, Paul would say, through Christ Jesus our Lord. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The cross means that there's nothing that comes into my life that I cannot overcome because Jesus has already overcome on my behalf. Now, what do we do for Jesus who has forgiven us and who's given us the victory? I tell you what we do. We praise him. His name was Eddie Rickenbacker. 
You probably don't know that name. But for years, if you wanted to see Eddie Rickenbacker, you would just go down to the Florida Keys and there at the end of one of their piers on a Friday afternoon, oh, about two or three o'clock, there would be old Eddie Rickenbacker with a bucket full of shrimp, tossing shrimp up in the air to a gathering flock of seagulls. He did this every Friday afternoon for decades of his life until he died. Why did Eckenbacher do that? See, Eddie Rickenbacker was a World War I flying ace, our most decorated pilot in World War I. World War II comes along. Eddie Rickenbacker wanted to fight in World War II, but they told him he's too old. But Roosevelt was so grateful to Eddie Rickenbacker, what he did in World War I, that he actually had Eddie Rickenbacker fly to the South Pacific to encourage General Douglas MacArthur. So here is Eddie Rickenbacker. He takes some people. They fly to the South Pacific, and World War II encourages uh, General Douglas MacArthur and the other soldiers. And on their way back, Eddie Rickenbacker's plane, their bomber, crashes into the South Pacific. He survives. Everybody else on board survives. But for eight days, they're in a life raft. No food, minimal water. Eddie Rickenbacker was a man of faith. At the end of eight days, he figured, this is it for us. Let me just say a word of prayer. Give God praise. Give God thanks. Ask God to supply our needs, and let's see what happens. He's praying. In the middle of his prayer, a seagull lands on his head. He figures, if I can move fast enough... I can kill this seagull and we can get some sustenance. And he moves fast enough, kind of grotesque. He plucks out the feathers and they eat this seagull. Then they dig out the entrails. Someone finds a hook and a line and they use the entrails of this seagull to go fishing. And they catch fish after fish after fish. This one seagull fed them for the next 28 days. Eddie Rickenbacker made up his mind that he was going to be grateful The seagull had pretty much given his life that he would have life. And so every Friday afternoon for the rest of his life, he goes down to the end of the pier there in Key Biscayne. And if you snuck up behind him as he was throwing shrimp in the air, you could hear him say these words. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eddie Rickenbacker had the sense to know if something dies for you, The least you can do is say thank you. On the cross, friends, Jesus died for us. He lived the life we could not live and died the death we should have died. He stood in our place and for our sins, and he has forgiven us. The least we can do is say thank you, friends. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the new life. Thank you that we are forgiven, not because of my own striving because of what he's done for us. As we prepare to take communion and end our service this afternoon, would you just take a moment to bow your head and in your own way, would you do what Eddie Rickenbacker did? Would you thank the one who died for you? Would you tell him thank you right now?